passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right. Well, uh, good morning again. We're going to be Mark chapter 15 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Mark 15. Uh, We're going to be in the first 20 verses. Uh, And uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of a, a, I don't know, a recap. Um, Not a recap because we're looking forward. Less than a month away from the end of of Mark's gospel. This is a a journey that we started um, over two years ago. I, I told my wife um, that uh, our, our youngest was like two weeks old when we started this book, and now he's over two. And so um, we've, we've been here for a while, but it is, um, it's been good for me uh, to just walk through the story of Jesus according to Mark. So uh, Mark 15, 1 through 20, this morning we're going to look at Jesus before Pilate. And uh, before we do that, I want to just highlight something that... Um, uh, that it's really easy for us to pass over because of the kind of the speed or, or lack thereof um, through which we've been going through Mark's gospel. Um, and that is the expediency of chapter 14 and chapter 15, how quickly these things happen in Mark's gospel. It, it seems like uh, it was ages ago uh, that we were looking at Mark chapter 14. We were actually still out at the fairgrounds, so I think a lot of that has to do with the weather. Um, the, the weather makes it seem like it's been ages ago um, especially today. But um, one of the drawbacks of, of how slow we've been going through Mark's gospel is that we can easily forget how, how fast these things happen, um, how fast things just kind of snowball out of control for Jesus leading to his crucifixion. Mark 14, starting in verse 12 through chapter 15, uh, 47, those take about eight weeks for us uh, to, to get through. And yet... Um, they, they take place in the course of about 24 hours or less in Jesus's life. Um, this, is a, this is a time, you know, we, we come in here and, and we've, it's been a week since we've looked at Mark's gospel, right? Um, we, we've had countless thoughts, countless actions. We've, we've been going through um, the, the motions of a work week. There's been a lot that has happened uh, since we last looked at Mark's gospel, um, Iowa lost, Iowa State lost, Nebraska lost, Minnesota lost. I mean, it's just been a rough week for, for a lot of us, right? Um, all of that has happened uh, in the last week since we looked at Mark's gospel, and yet Mark picks up immediately after where we were last week looking at the time of Jesus before the religious authorities. Some educated guesswork suggests that, that Jesus was arrested around one, one or two in the morning, after that, uh, he was brought before the religious authorities for a trial that took place around 3, 4 in the morning. Before that, he, uh, or after that, he was brought before Pilate around 6 in the morning. He was nailed to a cross around 9 in the morning. And then he was on the cross for 6 hours, and then he died around 3 p.m. And so the speed of the events that we are studying right here is absolutely shocking, especially when you consider that Jesus was teaching in the temple just the day before. Jesus was, was teaching just moments before this, and we're not going to focus on, on the speed of these events necessarily, but I want us to just point out that this wasn't something that, that was a long, drawn-out process. In fact, crucifixions in that day would take up to two, three days for a person to die, and for Jesus to die in six hours was shocking for the people of that day. 
This morning's passage is, is all about the rejection of Jesus. Mark 14 is about Jesus' abandonment. He is abandoned by all of his disciples. This culminates with Peter denying him three times at the end of chapter 14. Now, Jesus is going to be rejected by both the Jews and the Gentiles, by both those who are kind of the political elite as well as the common folk of the day. Jesus is completely rejected by everyone, the totality of humanity in this morning's passage. As we consider his rejection, I just want us to do so by kind of following the movement of this passage. Jesus is first before Pilate, then he's before the crowds, and then finally he is before the soldiers. So that's kind of the roadmap for where we'll be this morning. Uh, before we uh, jump in, let's go ahead and pray, ask for God's blessing to be with us this morning. Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, as, as we uh, approach your word this morning, we ask once more that your spirit would come and illuminate our hearts. God, that we, um, we, we confess that we are in desperate need for you to speak so that we can hear from you. And so, God, we pray now with expectant hearts and this expectant hope that, that you would do just that. God, that you would help us to fix our eyes increasingly on Jesus. And that you would be pleased to use this passage, this text, to help us to fix our eyes ever more on Jesus to be ever faithful followers of Jesus, to follow in his footsteps even when it is hard and costs much. Bless us now, this time now in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as I mentioned, uh, three sections of Mark's gospel in, um, or excuse me, uh, of this text. We're going to look first at Jesus before Pilate, verses 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Recall what has taken place right before this. Right before this, Jesus has been brought before the religious council in the middle of the night. The religious authorities, they've already reached their verdict. They think that Jesus is deserving to die. This isn't a legitimate trial. They actually just want to put him to death. And so this trial that takes place in the middle of the night is just looking for an excuse to, uh, a good enough of an excuse, uh, good enough of a reason to put Jesus to death. They bring up false witnesses and the false witnesses fail. But then Jesus confesses on his own lips that he is the Christ. What's more, he's not just the Christ, but actually that he is going to be seated at the right hand of God. And this is exactly what the chief priests want to hear. And at least in this frenzy, they begin to rip their clothes in, in anger or at least in outward anger. And they say that this is exactly what we need in order to put Jesus to death. There's just one problem. And that is that in that day, the Jews didn't have authority to put anyone to death. That power rested with Rome and Rome alone. And so if they were going to get Jesus put to death, they have to bring their accusation before the Roman governor and convince the Roman governor that this person, that this Jesus is deserving of death. And so to actually kill Jesus... They have to take their religious uh, accusation, their religious frustration with Jesus, something that, that the Roman governor wouldn't put Jesus to death for, and twist that and turn it into a political 
accusation against Jesus. The Roman governor won't put someone to death for religious reasons, but for political reasons, they certainly will. Roman governor of that day, man that we're all familiar with his name, Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Pilate, like most political figures in the first century, honestly, most of human history, really just cared about himself. That was what he was most concerned with. His number one priority was staying in good standing with Caesar, with the, the ruler, the emperor of the Roman Empire. In fact, his superior shortly before this was, was put to death because of, of how he was not being faithful to the Roman Caesar. So he has this on one side where he, he wants to make sure that he stays in good standing with the guy who can actually put him to death. And yet at the same time, on the other hand, he hates the Jews. He, he looks for any and every reason and opportunity for him to, to be able to humiliate them. And as you could expect, this creates some sort of weird mix from Pilate, doesn't it? On the one hand, he wants to keep the Jews uh, content enough under his rule so that they don't go complain to Caesar and he loses his position. And yet on the other hand, he wants to make sure that he has the opportunity to treat them the way he actually wants, to mock them, to ridicule them, and to humiliate them. It was common practice in that day for uh, Roman um, leaders to begin their workday early. They'd, they'd be in the office, so to speak, at dawn. And so that's why this takes place so early here in this passage. Uh, the, the Roman authorities, they would want to, to get all their work done in the morning so that way they could just uh, lounge around, enjoy the rest of this day. And it appears, based off of this text, that when it says, right when it was morning, right here at the beginning, as soon as it was morning, the, the religious authorities, they have a second group gathering, and then after that, they bring their accusation to Jesus. So around 6 a.m., the, the council convenes to make what is decided um, in the middle of the night official. Notice that that's what takes place here in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. So the council gathers back together. Um, some of them gathered in the middle of the night, but now apparently most, if not all of them, are there. And the leaders of the Jewish religion, they reject Jesus. As their king, Jesus is bound, and then he is brought to Pilate shortly after 6 a.m., and these charges against Jesus are made known to Pilate. And after hearing these charges, Pilate decides to ask Jesus himself. He says, what, what are all these people saying about you? Is, is it true? Are you really the king of the Jews? And notice how Jesus responds. He responds with this phrase. It's kind of awkward in our translations, you have said so. What exactly does that mean? You have said so. Perhaps a modern way of putting Jesus' response is to translate it something like, um, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, oh, you could say that. Or, well, that's one way of putting it. But the problem with both of those translations is there's a little bit of snark there. So there's a little sarcasm in the way we say that. That's, that's not um, a part of what Jesus is saying. He's, he's just saying, you know what? The, what you have just described is, is true but at the same time, you don't really understand what that actually means. This is really what the gospel of Mark is about in a sense, right? Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. He is the king of the Jews. In fact, he's the, the king of the entire universe. And yet at the same time, that doesn't mean what you think it means. The first half of Mark's gospel, chapters 1 through 8, all ask the question, or who is Jesus? And then the second half of Mark's gospel, 9 through 16, asks the question, well, what exactly does 
that mean? Pilate answers the first half. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus is the king of the Jews. Pilate has that answer. But he doesn't know the answer to the second half. What exactly does that mean? So Jesus responds with, you have said so. Well, after that, the religious authorities, they begin to throw all of their accusations that they have um, at Jesus. They're hoping that something will stick. They accuse him of many things. Mark doesn't tell us how many accusations they level at Jesus. We know it's a, it's a lot based off of what Pilate says in verse 4. Pilate says in verse 4, see how many charges they bring against you. So they're, they're throwing everything at Jesus, hoping that something will stick. We don't know what the content of these accusations are, and that's because they don't matter. Those accusations don't matter. Mark doesn't tell us what they are. They are baseless and they distract from the message that Mark wants to sink in for us, that Jesus is the king. His own people have rejected him. He is the king of the Jews. And yet he has been turned over by the Jewish authorities to be put to death. In response to all of these accusations, Jesus remains silent. In one sense, this just shows his innocence, doesn't it? He won't even give these accusations the, the, the credence of, of responding to them. And so he remains silent. But in a deeper sense, Jesus remains silent because he is living out a part of his mission. What is Jesus' mission? Well, he tells us all the way back in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And What? to give his life as a ransom for many. Back in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, God, through one of his prophets, Isaiah, cho- or spoke how his chosen one, the, the one who would bring, a, who would be a ransom for many, how he would save his people. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then Isaiah continues. He begins to say how this suffering servant, God's ransom for his people, how he will respond in the face of impending death. Verse 7, he was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is silent in, in the face of all of these accusations. That silence absolutely astounds Pilate. Pilate has condemned countless people to death in his tenure. Many of those people who have been accused of the exact same thing that Jesus has been accused of here, treason. Plotting to overthrow Rome. That's what a, a, a king of the Jews would try to do. And when all of those other people were accused of these crimes that Jesus is being accused of, they would respond in one of two ways. Many of them would undoubtedly respond with this flood of words in their defense, saying, that's, that's not true. That's, that's not what I said. That's not what I do. That's not what I, I want. They would do whatever it takes to prove that these charges against them are false. Why? Because they want to save themselves, right? They want to save their own skin. On the other hand, you'd have those that are defiant when these charges are brought, brought before Pilate. 
They would taunt Pilate. Their, their hatred for Rome would be so great that they would, they would want to go down swinging, do all that they could to, to rouse their followers into a rebellion, to, to make things worse for Rome. And Jesus doesn't either. Jesus does neither. He doesn't begin to plead his innocence. He doesn't begin to, to defy Pilate in order to stoke the fires of rebellion. Why? Well, it's because his mission is not to overthrow Caesar. It's to give his life as a ransom for many. His mission is not to save his own life. His mission is to offer up his life for anyone who would believe in him. And that's why his response amazes Pilate. Pilate is absolutely amazed by Jesus' response. This, is, this word amazed here, it's not a, a positive word, as though Pilate is just in awe, that he's, he's on the cusp of faith, that he's almost there, he's, he's almost ready to believe, if just a, just a little bit more, and, and then he'll really believe who Jesus is. Now, this, this word elsewhere in Mark has the connotation of disbelief, or like, I cannot believe that. Jesus actually uses, this word is used to describe Jesus when he is in his own town, Nazareth, and he sees the unbelief of the people. And it says that Jesus is amazed. He, he cannot believe the hard hearts of his people. Pilate is shocked at how Jesus is responding, and yet at the same time, he knows, he, he can see that Jesus isn't worthy of death, that all of this is rooted in some sort of envy from the religious leaders. And he's politically savvy, and so he figures out a way that he thinks will be successful in releasing Jesus from this imprisonment. And, and at the same time that he won't lose standing with the Jewish people, that he won't lose standing with Caesar. So he has this plan. We'll, we'll pick up in verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So apparently there is some sort of tradition in Judea, not all that different than presidential pardons today. It makes a, a fair bit of sense, right? Rome and, and Judea, not exactly on good terms, not exactly friendly. One of the easiest ways for the Roman authorities to appease things is to release one person once a year. Okay, we'll just give them a little bit, and that will keep them content to continue to have us as their overlords. And it makes sense, of course, for this to correspond with the Passover. As they celebrate the Passover, they celebrate their freedom from Egypt. We'll go ahead and free one of these prisoners. Mark tells us about one man, Barabbas, who is convicted of the same sort of crime that Jesus is being accused of, treason. He is being accused of treason against Rome, but unlike Jesus, Barabbas is certainly guilty in this uprising against Rome, this rebellion against Rome. He has killed someone or, or multiple someones as he is in the midst of this, and, and he is likely awaiting his own crucifixion. 
Barabbas, most likely, as a, a, uh, someone guilty of treason, likely going to be put to death on a cross. Now, Pilate is an adept politician, and so in his efforts to free Jesus, he brings out two options. You can free Jesus, this man who has been teaching in the temple day after day. He's been teaching throughout the countryside for the last couple months and years, and everyone basically loves him. He hasn't ever threatened violence against Rome. You can choose him. Or you can choose this man, Barabbas, this murderer. And in Pilate's mind, because he can see everything, he says, surely they're going to choose to free Jesus. I'll get out of this, and the rest of this day I can just enjoy uh, on my own, right? Well, let's see how the crowd responds. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Many claim that this is an example of the fickleness of the crowd. That the crowd that welcomed Jesus in Mark chapter 11 on Palm Sunday, now just a few days later is crying for Jesus' crucifixion. That's not what Mark is portraying here. That's not what we see here from this crowd. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem back in Mark chapter 11, and Mark stresses that it isn't the people of Jerusalem who are welcoming Jesus as their king, that they are welcoming Jesus by saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's not what the people of Jerusalem do. He stresses in in chapter 11 that it is the pilgrims who are walking with Jesus. He actually tells us it is those who are walking with him and going in front of him, going behind him, that are saying this. The people of Jerusalem have a completely different response to Jesus when he arrives on Palm Sunday. Jerusalem, the heart of the Jewish religion, how do they respond to Jesus? Mark 11, verse 11. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus' long-awaited king, long-awaited savior, finally has come to Jerusalem. This is the moment that has been prophesied about in the book of Malachi. This moment that is uh, all of, of, of history is, is pointing toward, and the people of Israel are supposed to be ready. The people of Jerusalem are waiting for their king, for God himself to arrive. And then we get this moment. And everything in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, is pointing to this. It's telling us that this is it. This is what you have been waiting for. And then we get to verse 11, and Jesus gets to the temple, and he looks around. No one's waiting for him. No crowds are there. And he goes home. The people of Jerusalem, indifferent toward Jesus. People like this guy, they come and go. Why should he be any different? It's not a fickle crowd that's praising Jesus in one moment and then asking for his crucifixion in the, ne- in the next. It's, it's just an indifferent crowd. Whatever. 
it doesn't really matter who he is. Here at the heart of Judaism, we have this, this dead shell of a religion. It can't even recognize its own king. The one that they have been waiting for for so long, they can't even recognize him. Instead, they call for his crucifixion. Pilate's plan backfires. And it backfires badly. So he tries again. And, and the crowd again calls for Jesus' crucifixion. He tries a third time. He asks for a reason. He asks for any reason. So why? What's he done? Why is he worth crucifying? And the crowd responds, crucify him. It doesn't matter. You see the irony of that? That the Jewish people, the ones who are supposed to welcome in the king, refuse to do so while we have this pagan who's actually coming to Jesus' defense in this moment. A pagan is defending the Son of God from the accusations of the people of God. But again, the, the crowd ignores Pilate. They ignore Pilate and cry out again, crucify him. Matthew gives us even more of a sobering picture of the crowd here. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Pilate is shocked in this moment. That doesn't mean that he is innocent as he claims in Matthew. He's not innocent. He is as guilty. Some of the most damning words in this passage, really in the entire gospel of Mark, found in verse 15, Pilate's conclusion. Notice what he concludes as he's about to crucify Jesus. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. What does it say? Does it say, Pilate, having been convinced of the crowd's argument, delivered Jesus over to be crucified? Or, Pilate, seeing the danger of Jesus to the Roman rule, delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Pilate, out of a hatred for the Jewish people, decided to put Jesus to death. No, it's none of that. We see Pilate's heart. We see his priorities right here in this passage. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus is, is crucified because of Pilate's priorities, not because of his convictions. He's, be, he's, he's being crucified because Pilate doesn't want to have to deal with the extra paperwork or have to answer a couple uncomfortable questions from his superiors because of this Jesus fellow. Pilate's indifference towards Jesus is, is overruled by his selfishness. He knows that Jesus is, isn't guilty. He knows that he is innocent. And yet justice doesn't matter nearly as much to Pilate as it does just to take care of himself. Here's Jesus, the king. He's rejected by the Jewish leaders. He's rejected by the Jewish people. He's rejected by the Roman authorities as well. And he's also going to be rejected by the Roman people, the soldiers 
starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. One of the most striking things about Mark's narrative of Jesus as he's on his way to the crucifixion is is how little he focuses on Jesus' physical suffering. We have just a, a couple words here to describe what in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ seemed to last for forever. Why is that? Notice in verse 15, all that, all that he says about the suffering of Jesus. Not all that he says, but about the scourging of Jesus. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he, brought, he delivered him to be crucified. This moment would have been horrific to witness, as would the crucifixion. Jesus, the fact that he endured this physical torture in obedience to his Father's will shows how much he is committed to his Father's will, how much he loves his people. And yet, while many sermons, many retellings such as uh, the Passion of the Christ, they they dwell on the, the awfulness of this moment on this scene, Mark just passes over it. Why? Two reasons, I think. First, Mark's audience would have known the horrors of crucifixion uh, of these moments far more than we do. Uh, there would have been no need to just dwell on them because everyone would have known. Many of the people who received Mark's gospel in the first century had friends, Christians, who had been crucified. They had seen this happen to their friends. And so for them, it wouldn't be, that, uh, it wouldn't be something that needed to be explained. But second, and, and I think more importantly for us, is this, Mark doesn't go into the details because he has something more important to discuss than the physical suffering of Jesus. Later in the crucifixion, he focuses on the awful weight of the judgment of God that is resting on Jesus rather than the physical pain of the cross. And here, rather than focusing on the, on the physical pain of the, the torture that Jesus endures... He instead focuses on this mock enthronement from the soldiers. Everything in verses 16 through 20 is a statement that is meant to mock the claim that Jesus is the king of the Jews. The purple cloak, most likely it would have been a rag, but purple was the color of imperial royalty, and so they put it on Jesus. If you say that you're a king, well, let's go ahead and dress you up like a king. The crown of thorns certainly would have hurt, but it is a satanic imitation of the crown that Jesus deserved. What's more, the mock salutes and the cries of hail, the king of the Jews, they're cries of of drunk frat boys terrorizing someone. The, The reed that they continue to hit Jesus in the head with, this is his scepter that a king would hold showing his authority, and yet they hit him with it. And they spit on him and they they bow down before him. Everything that they do in these verses is filled with evil. It's depraved. 
to show how they really feel that Jesus is the king of the Jews. This is really what we think of you as king. You catch the irony here? We don't have time to go into the irony of of Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, one of the most... one of the most ironic chapters in the Bible. And I don't mean that in the way that we think of irony or something being ironic. There's levels of interpretation and understanding here. This is a perfect example of irony in this passage that the soldiers are making fun of Jesus because he claims to be the king of the Jews and they don't believe it. And yet we, on the outside, those who have seen all of Mark's gospel, we understand That Jesus actually is the king of the Jews, not just of the Jews, he's the king of everyone. And so everything that they are doing right here, this fake enthronement is true. He is the king. He is worthy of everyone bowing down and saying, hail, king of the Jews. He's worthy of not being showered in spit, but, but showered in worship. We see the exact same thing in, uh, throughout this chapter. Later, as Jesus is on the cross, people shout at him and say, if you, if you want to prove who you are, then save yourself. In other words, you, they, they say, you could save others, but you can't save yourself. You catch the irony of that? If Jesus would actually save others, he can't save himself. He has to give himself as a ransom for many And these soldiers right here, they don't realize it. They're making fun of him. They're mocking him. They're rejecting him. And yet their actions and their words are true. Hail, king, not just of the Jews, but the king of all people. I think if we're honest with ourselves as we look at this passage, many of us we may not have all that much in common with the soldiers. This mocking, just venomous, open hostility toward Jesus, it does exist today. But I don't think that exists among us, most likely. I think most of us have far more in common with Pilate. I don't expect you to remember this, But about a year ago, we were going through Mark 6. Mark 6, verses 14 through 29, tell us about the death of John the Baptist and how John the Baptist is put to death by King Herod. And one of the things that we saw in that passage is that John's death foreshadows the death of Jesus. Both John and Jesus are put to death by political tyrants, Herod and Pilate. Both John and Jesus... Uh, are put to death because that political tyrant is coerced by a second party, Herodias and the chief priests. And they put an innocent man to death, John and Jesus, because of political and social pressure of those who are watching, those at Herod's feast and the crowd. And do you remember the reason why John is put to death by Herod back in Mark chapter 6? It's not because he wanted to put Mark to He didn't want to put John to death. Verse 26 makes that very clear. 
Mark 6, 26, and the king, Herod, was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Why does Herod kill John? Well, it's because he loves himself more than he loves anyone else. He loves himself more than he loves anyone else. And while he was drunk, he made a stupid promise And it would be embarrassing for Herod to back out of that promise, even if it was the right thing to do. It would make him look bad in front of his friends. And so it is worth putting an innocent man to death just so that way he can avoid an embarrassing situation. What about Pilate? Pilate, same thing. He kills Jesus. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He's very clear on that. He knows that this is just because of envy from these chief priests. This passage couldn't be any clearer. He knows that Jesus is is here because of trumped up charges, and yet we, we see why he decides to put Jesus to death. Verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate condemns Jesus to death because it is the popular decision. It will make his life easier. It will mean fewer awkward conversations with his superiors in Rome. He knows that Jesus is innocent, but that ultimately doesn't matter because Pilate only cares about himself. He's only looking out for Himself. And I think that's the, the chief lesson of this passage. It's found in Pilate's indifference. In his indifference towards Jesus, Pilate is faced with the opportunity for faith, for repentance, and that's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. It will cost him much. It will cost him status. It might even cost him his life. But he knows that Jesus is not deserving of death. And let's be real, faith and repentance are always hard. They are always costly. If we truly follow Jesus wholeheartedly, it will cost us a great deal. And Pilate says, I'm I'm not interested in that. Let me be indifferent toward this Jesus. And it's in that juxtaposition there between faith, obedience, and and indifference we see the main point of this passage, and that is simply this. Indifference towards Jesus is a wholehearted rejection of Jesus. Indifference toward Jesus is just wholehearted rejection of Jesus of Jesus. That's the, ter- the terrifying, terrifying truth of this passage. If, if you are indifferent toward Jesus, if you think that he's a, a nice guy, a nice addition to your life, a nice accessory, but also at the, at the same time, you're tor- turned off 
by his claims of lordship over your entire life, if you find it convenient to to put Jesus in charge of of 90% of your life or or 95% of your life, but, but these areas are yours, rather than wholehearted surrender, which is what Jesus wants of those who would follow him, then as tough as it may sound, you have wholeheartedly rejected Jesus. There is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Indifference toward him is wholehearted rejection of him. And so as we close, we ask ourselves, what about us? What is our attitude toward Jesus? What does that, what does that say about us? What is the priority of, of your lives What what do they say about us? Here on on Sunday morning, as we sing words, we're just going through the motions, thinking about other things, thinking about how badly Iowa played yesterday, and other teams too. Don't, Don't get me wrong. Are we focused? on wholehearted devotion and surrender to Jesus. Let's learn the lesson of Pilate. Yes, the, the, the chief priests and the soldiers and the crowd, they all reject Jesus. But don't miss Pilate. Pilate thinks he can wash his hands and say, I don't have anything to do with this. God says otherwise. Indifference toward Jesus is wholehearted rejection of Jesus. Let's be a a people who who don't just half-heartedly give our lives to him, but with every fiber of our being, worship the king. Not just of the Jews, but of the universe. Let's pray. Father, we need, we need your grace. I look at so many areas of my life where I haven't wholly surrendered them to you. I might not be as bad as Pilate, but I'm pretty close to Pilate at times. So, Father, we just start with forgiveness, or asking for forgiveness We know that faith and repentance is costly, that you ask us to pick up our cross and follow you. And that's hard. It's painful. It costs us a great deal. At the same time, God, we we confess that what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Help us to learn the lesson of Pilate here, to not be indifferent toward you in any area of our life. Help us now, even as we join our voices together in worship, that that we would respond wholeheartedly 
And that the words that we profess this morning would be reflected in our lives the rest of this week. Help us, God, to be faithful because of what you have done for us through your Son, the ransom for many. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.